What's up, everybody? This is Grant at Cause Artist. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Impact. And today we're going to chat with Justin Kula, who's a partner of Impact Investing and ESG at the TZP Group. And Justin's background is uh, pretty incredible, pretty insane. He holds a BS and MISM degree from Carnegie Mellon University, an MBA from MIT, and an MPA from Harvard University. So we touch on a little bit about how education has played a big role in his life. And in his career. Justin began his career at Credit Suisse, where he was an engineer working in New York, London, and Zurich, and in Google, where he worked in business development. Following business school, Justin joined the Hearst Corporation's venture capital group, focused on early-stage internet and media investments. In 2010, Justin was a founding member of Weld North, an education technology private equity firm backed by KKR. During his tenure at Weld North, Justin invested in Ingenuity, Imagine Learning, The Learning House, and Performance Matters. In 2015, Justin founded and served as CEO of Business Blocks, an education technology company for working adults and small businesses. Business Blocks was acquired in 2007 by Amtrust Financial Services, a Fortune 500 insurance company. I was very honored that Justin took took the time out to, to have a couple conversations with me. And unfortunately, the, the audio is a, is a little rough for some reason. The echoing on his end was 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 pretty was pretty bad, so I had to I had to try to do some editing work to to make it sound better at least. Um, but there is a little echo there, and I tried to to fix as much as possible. So I apologize to Justin for that and, and not being able to hear that when we, we had our interview. It was clean on my end, but the recording looks sometimes tech thing ha- things happen, right? So I did my best I can to edit it up, but uh, it's a fascinating conversation. I hope you, you get through the whole thing. Um, we really touch on how institutional you know capital and investment are really looking at impact investing and ESG and really trying to define what that is, right? I mean, it could live in a couple different areas. It, it's sort of not defined yet what impact investing is, and, and I don't think it needs to be defined. I think it can be defined in in many ways. It can be declared in so many different sectors around the world. Um, I think as long as you're building incredible products and have incredible customer service that are improving people's lives, I think that that's impact, right? So we talk a little bit about what he thinks impact investing is, how he looks at it, how his his investing philosophy maybe changed from you know traditional venture to now getting into venture within the impact realm. I like that discussion a lot. I think he had some some great points and some great overviews about what he's learned from his life abroad too and working on a global on a global level, I think has really, you know, framed his opinion in a great way that, that gives perspective that not not many many people have coming into to the impact investing and ESG world. So hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. You know, I'm super grateful that Justin took the time out. Um, have a great day, have a great week, and we'll see you soon. Thanks. So how I usually like to, to start these conversations is about an individual's journey and, and I think their their roadmap to, to sort of get to where they are. And yours has been one of the more, more fascinating ones I, I've come across. And I, I don't, I'd like to start maybe with, with your background in, in your degrees, because I, I love, you've kind of have a, a like a, like a portfolio should be diversified, right? You kind of have a diversity of, of education from, I have a degrees in Car- from Carnegie Mellon, uh, Harvard and MIT. So I think Let's kind of start there and maybe what you took from that. I'm sure it's, you know, there's so much, you know, knowledge and energy that, that comes out of uh, those institutions. But I guess what were some of the bigger takeaways from that, from that sort of point in your life? It's great to be here, Grant. I, I, uh, I don't know if I was so thoughtful and planned about the roadmap. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that my life, both personally and professionally, has been a function of serendipity. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I took good opportunities where they, where they came. Uh, but education really has been a sort of consistent theme throughout my life. I wasn't blessed being a very good sports player. So <laughs> I got cut from the baseball team that my dad coached when I was. Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I was always inclined toward, toward school and education and found great opportunities along the way uh, and pursued my passions. And so in high school, I was interested in computer science and we started the computer science classes in our high school, and that led me to Carnegie Mellon, uh, where I did information systems, and then realized that there was an opportunity to pursue a master's degree there, and so I stayed on and, and did that at Carnegie Mellon. When I graduated uh, school, we were on the back end of the dot-com bus, mm. and the big employers in Silicon Valley were eviscerated, and the, the biggest employers at Carnegie Mellon at the time were the government, like the NSA, right. and at the, the investment banks, and I chose the latter, and it was a great experience. I got to uh, work in London, New York, and Zurich during that time. Started to learn about venture capital, and was so blown away by the fact that someone could get paid to learn about new industries and how technology could positively impact the world. I decided to apply to business school, and that was actually what I wrote my business school essay on: becoming a venture capitalist because I thought mm. technology could could be a, a catalyst for positive change. And I chose MIT because at the time, Susan Hockfield, the president, uh, said that she wanted MIT to be the place where little kids come to make their world a better place. That that kind of worldview was so impressive to me. And, and that was true during my time. You, know, you, you were exposed to so many incredible ideas and intersectionality between technology and art and different domains and really the people who were offering those innovations and new ideas. At the time, again, I got exposed to the idea of a joint degree with the Harvard Kennedy School. And that really compelled me, not for vocational reasons, actually because of, I had been focused on doing computer science undergrad, which was going to lead to a job, mm-hmm. and then going to business school, which was going to lead to a job. I thought I had to kind of rip myself off and not expose myself to a broad-minded view of liberal arts uh, education. And I took that opportunity to join the Kennedy School and take classes that weren't going to lead to a job and hmm. expose me to, to new ideas. Certainly fascinating classmates and folks who are now leaders around the world um, from a public policy and public affairs. And so that was not planned. I, I took good opportunities as I came. Um, but education really was a lever for unlocking opportunities for me. And at every juncture, I got exposed to new people, new jobs. And I started to really understand how powerful education is for everybody. And even in my own story, my grandmother coming to the U.S. at 14 without an education, then making sure that her children had high school education and their children had a college education and, and me being able to go to some world-class uh, schools, which are a lot of opportunities for me. And that, that idea is common for so many people around the world. Right. I have I, so I, I've been sort of always fascinated with how uh, how powerful education is as a tool for democratizing opportunity. So through that, I mean, obviously, I mean, tremendous sort of experience, not just from you know a business perspective and an educational perspective, but I think what was really important there was like a global perspective because um, you know issues and challenges are different in different parts of the world, right? And technology can do different things for you know, different people in different communities around the world. What was, 
I guess, what was that experience like for you, like globally to look at whether it was venture or business or technology from a global perspective rather than just in America? Is it, is it a lot different? Like, do, do you see technology solving different issues globally versus its challenges that it tries to solve here in the, in the States? Technology is a tool and it can be a tool for good and, 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 yeah. and it, can have, it can have negative effects as well. Yeah. But I think the promise of technology is that it really can scale. Mm. And, um, and so that's an, that's an easy thing to say and it sounds sort of like a buzzword, but I had been exposed to those concepts, uh, especially through my university uh, experience, but also through personal travel and seeing how technology really can um, have widespread and positive impact. And, and, and they're not relegated to just consumer apps that we all use in our daily lives, but right. it could be hard technologies that, that focus on environmental issues. It could be education technologies, it could be financial technology. But if you look at the power of applying technology to big markets, you can understand not only are they great business opportunities, but they can also have positive effects on people around the world. I would say that was that felt especially true at MIT that mm. had that global view. Uh, some very significant percentage of my classmates were international. Um, when they came to campus, they brought their their own unique perspectives from their communities, the challenges, the opportunities, and what happened in the classroom and outside is we started to connect the dots. One of the things that I think is special is that broad world uh, and and how and how you can get exposed to new ideas and especially new people in ways that, that wouldn't have been available, you know, a hundred years ago. Through your career in in, in venture, there, there's kind of, there's probably a way you look at sectors, look at businesses, look at opportunity. And now that there's a shift, I think, into impact investing that is quite interesting. And, and that's kind of what I'm passionate about is, is how we can allocate capital to to lift people out of poverty or, or improve education and improve healthcare. I mean, there's so many aspects where the disruption that technology can bring into to these old systems is is really have, a, it can be really be profound and, and very powerful. So I guess, how do you make this sort of transition into really focusing on whether it's ESG, impact investing, sustainability, does your philosophy have to change at all? Does, does your strategy have to, to change a little bit when you look at companies, when you look at numbers, or do the fundamentals still stay the same? Yeah. So there's a lot of parts to that question. I think it would be sort of use my narrative as a, the backdrop for answering the question. I started my investing career in, in traditional early stage internet uh, investing and read one day in the Wall Street Journal that the former CEO Kaplan was starting a new investment group focused on education investing. And, and I didn't know that was a thing at the time. Mm. It was before impact had become a moniker and a name for an industry. And, uh, and education investing at the time was out of favor. Now, EdTech is, is certainly uh, a right. uh, hot space in many ways, uh, but at the time it wasn't. And what we were looking to do was bring technology, especially into K-12 classrooms in higher ed, uh, to help innovate markets that hadn't been touched by technology as much as other other industries. And there were lots of reasons for that. There was the lack of enabling technology, like high-speed bandwidth into schools, one-to-one right. uh, -one computers, terminally funding mechanisms, the capabilities from the school to uh, 
implement these technology solutions and interplay between systems, just, just to name a few. And, and and we set out to invest in technologies that, that, that could be part of that, that shift. We had a great experience investing in K-12, higher ed, and, and a, a little bit in adult learning as well. And and through that time, the impact uh, investing space is growing and evolving. Mm-hmm. We, we never thought about ourselves as impact investors properly. We were financial investors. We happen to focus on education. And so one, one of your questions is, you know, as you you have to specialize, I, I do think that many investors who, who are good investors tend to specialize in some way. And it could be around an industry or around a business model, around a customer group, because you, you start to learn about how industries function, how to bring resources to bear to help your investments grow. And for me, uh, that has really always been around education, employment, and financial inclusion. Connecting the dots between people getting education so they can get a good job mm-hmm. and getting a good job so they can have a financial stable future. As it relates to impact investing, whether you need to make money to be a good impact investor, I, I think that both conditions need proof. And so if the project of impact investing is pulling in more capital into spaces that are investing in world positive domains, what we need to do is to prove to investors that this is the best place for their capital, not in spite of the impact, but because of the impact. So if you take a step back, the United Nations, the Sustainable Development Goals, have outlined a variety of goals that will require between five and seven trillion dollars in capital a year to address itself. And that's a, a lot of money, and it sort of puts into context just how big, massive the kind of pressing global problems that we, we all face are. Um, and those stem from environmental problems, to education, to health and wellness. And because we have big problems, there are market-based solutions that will address some of them. Now, there will be governmental solutions and nonprofit solutions that address others, but there are big domains where market-based solutions are going to be a, a major part of that that, that solution. And because there is that opportunity, there's the opportunity to deploy private capital. And so to do well with the investment whilst addressing and serving that, that public good. And so what I think impact investors need to do is to show through having great financial returns um, and great social returns to for their investors that deploying capital in impact is not concessionary. It is it is the best place for them to deploy their money because unfortunately we have big global problems to address. So I've been on the for the last sort of seven years really looking at the consumer side of things and looking how the consumer is sort of changing it and maybe looking at better ways uh, to shop, right? What they buy, can their buying habits, you know, be more sustainable, right? Can can they look at products and say, you know what, I'll pay 10 extra bucks for this brand shirt because it's sustainable, right? It's eco-friendly and where I really like the impact that this company is making. And I think that the numbers do show that. I mean, there are definitely studies that show that consumers are willing to pay a little more, you know, from ethical brands, so to speak, and companies that look at not just necessarily the bottom line, but actually like, you know, what is our product doing for the world? Like, what is our company doing for the world? Is it is it putting a positive impact on the world or is it putting a negative one, right? Overall speaking. And from the consumer side, I think the answer has been, yes, people are willing to, to pay more to get that value and, and kind of shop their values a little bit. My question is from the investor side, do you see investors maybe willing to say, you know, look, maybe your returns might be 8x instead of 12x, but this 8x kind of has some different 
variables in it of impact that, you know, over time will will do this for, for society and for the world. Do you see maybe investors looking looking at that in, in that way at all, where it's like maybe the maximum return isn't necessarily the best thing, but maybe it's like a few percentage few percentage less, but the, the impact makes up for that other sort of three percent. I, I think there's there's a few ways to address the question, but in general, if you take a more established uh, investing domain, venture capital. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, venture capital invests in about 100,000 companies uh, a year, and there is about 28 million small businesses in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So most small businesses are not appropriate for venture capital. It's right. a, kind of a funding tool that is really appropriate for companies that are looking to grow extremely fast, and they have a, a business model, and they have a go-to-market strategy, and a team that can hopefully pursue that very fast pace of growth. That's not to say that the other businesses aren't good businesses. They could be great businesses, right. businesses that are worthy of different pools of capital. And some of them will become very big businesses, um, but that doesn't mean that they're going to grow at a Google-like rate. Sure. Uh, and, and in the same way, not all world positive focused companies are going to be great impact investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, some can pursue, uh, should, should pursue different pools of capital or uh, impact investors what you want to do is try to calibrate where you're going to have great financial returns. And those financial returns are very, very closely aligned to the social impact that you see. Where those things align um, very closely, you um, you can start to imagine how you have a really great impact investment. So take, for example, uh, an education company that's uh, focused on childhood literacy. Mm-hmm. More students who are able to pass a high stakes test, who are on grade level for childhood literacy, the more, the better the business does. Yep. And so if you teach more students and they perform well and your customers resign with you, you have a better business. Mm-hmm. So that's a company where the is very close to aligned to financial returns. And so for impact investments, aligning that social cause with the financial imperative as closely as possible is makes a really great impact. There, there are other things to, to consider too. When investors and, and operators make a claim that doing something good for their employees or for their customers might impact their bottom line, the question needs to become according to what time horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I contend that if you're doing the right thing for your employees, for your customers, uh, it will it will be good for your shareholders over a long period of time. The companies that are not doing right by their employees or their customers, they're not investing in things that are sustainable. Their customers might move away from them. Right. Their employees might start to go to competitors. And so the future cash flow of the business might be significantly impaired, although they're maximizing dollars for this year. And so if you're a long-term investor, you, um, I think you want to invest in a company that's making those long-term investments. And for folks who say, well, venture capital private equity is only a 7 to 10-year time horizon for any investment, what I would say to that is if you look at any great SaaS business, you're investing up front to acquire a customer, expecting that that customer is going to return and renew over many, many years. But you have to believe that's true and you have to continue to serve that customer in the ways. And if you do that, you get a very high valuation for companies that can prove that they can retain those customers, you know, sometimes multiple and revenue. And so, and that will be the same for, for impact as well. If we prove that we're doing a good job for customers, they're coming back, we're retaining our employees, we're being great participants in our communities, we'll have better valued businesses. So I actually think that it's positive impact at the outset, but it has to be authentic. 
Well, we touched on education a lot. And I think the disruption of education has, has, is long overdue. And I think there's a ton of platforms out there. And I guess we can kind of go back and forth on, on what we, what we think ed tech is or, or what we, what we think education ha- has the power to offer through an app, right. Or, or through an enterprise software system and something like, like Skillshare, right. And, and you to me, sort of these these direct to consumer education platforms, if you will, is is that what what you're saying? Maybe you're looking at long term in companies like that, where it's it is a SaaS product, right? You pay whether it's like nine ninety nine a month, or Udemy is you know you pay one time for for a course or whatever, or is it enterprise software where you're looking at school districts, right? You're looking at uh, big platforms like that, where maybe you're actually not dealing with consumers. But your consumers might be, you know, local school districts, right? Where you're dealing with like governments and that kind of stuff. Is do do you think the the investments will be a blend of those two, or or will it be more one or the other? Yeah, I think that education technology has proven that there are a number of different, really interesting business models across a, a whole range of yeah. uh, of subsectors uh, within education, and they're all very interesting. They are different, and so. Take, for example, just a, a slice of, of that rainbow um, from pre-K to K-12 to higher ed to financial literacy to job training to reskilling to uh, education for seniors, education for, for specific populations like veterans. Each of those subsegments will, will, will all have different business models. Some will have consumer B2B, but they all can be, they all have the possibility of being powerful business business models. Now, the ways in which those companies perform will, will differ, of course, but what, what we know uh, is sort of at play and what's creating this massive opportunity within education is we've had an education system that has been designed for the industrial age. Yeah. How, do, how do we train people in a regimented way right. um, for about 20 years and then have them work in a workforce for about 40 years? That's been uh, the traditional model for call it a couple uh, two two centuries, and that had worked re- really well until the world started to move very quickly. Uh, uh, and uh, we have a interconnected and global world, a world that is being powerfully touched by automation. Uh, we have a world uh, in which new skills are being demanded every day, and the infrastructure, the education infrastructure, has hasn't evolved um, significantly yeah. in any real way. And that, and that is true across all the things I just mentioned. And so while that, that creates problems in our current state, it also creates, uh, in some places, market-based opportunities. So take, for example, what's happening right now with COVID. So as we're talking right now, um, we have about 8.5% unemployment in the U.S. Some communities are more affected than others. If you were a waiter in Times Square, your job is unlikely to return for at least a year. And um, and that person needs to pay rent and feed themselves in the meantime. And so that person may uh, think about going back to school to get new skills. Um, but in many ways, that doesn't solve the problem that they're looking today. They don't have that time horizon. They may not want to or afford to invest in that degree. And obviously, time is uh, important, especially since this was so unexpected. And so the, that creates market-based opportunities for companies who can help folks reimagine their career, leverage the kind of interests and skills that they inherently have, and um, and deploy those into new categories. So 
you've seen the rise of, for instance, boot camps for some people who want to deploy their yeah. skills and interests into technical uh, jobs. But that's not the only possibility for, for reskill. Um, there are other possibilities too. So if we just continue on the example with uh, waiters, for example, the, the a person who is doing that job may be extremely uh, capable at being at sales. They're good at right. people. They are used to selling. They're, they just evolved and grown up in a different industry. And so there may be companies that uh, get created in a form that address uh, the need at this moment. And those needs will change. That The, the needs next year may change in, in 10 years. And so when you think about those changing needs, you start to imagine the kinds of companies that will be created and created for different communities. Um, the communities that are affected by COVID might have different needs than communities that are uh, being disrupted uh, because of uh, changing energy demands or yeah. communities that are, are, are affected by changing uh, political environments around the world. And so all of that creates opportunity for new companies that had never served that kind of adult population. It was always anticipated that when you graduated college, if you graduated college, um, that was going to be your last formal education. And, and now we get to reimagine what a post-college, if you go to college, experience would look like for the next 40 years of retraining. And so when you think about the kind of business models, kind of industries we're going to serve, it's going to be extremely vibrant and extremely uh, over the next, you know, 10, 20 years of education. About. Yeah, it's, I love, uh, I'm a big fan of, of sort of developer boot camps and sort of the idea of uh, you can really quickly learn how to specifically, you know, learn a coding language and, and get a job within eight to 10 months, you know, really high paying, high paying jobs. My, my friend actually did that, quit his, uh, quit his really lucrative job at, at, a, at a Fortune 500 company, quit, went and drove for Uber and went and did a boot camp a bootcamp for, for JavaScript development. And it took him about eight to 10 months. And, you know, he got a really high paying job at a company that he loves and works for. And he's like extremely happy. And he was like, this is like, there, there's no way this would have happened, you know, 15 years ago, right? You would have had to stay at that job you didn't like, even though it might pay you well, but you just hated getting up in the morning and going and doing it, right? So I think the opportunities for people to to adjust their their life and, and kind of change their life within a year is really powerful. Like that never really existed before, right? I mean, like you said, I mean, people came to college and worked at a company for 30 years, right? And that was kind of what you did. But now people are going to probably work at what, six companies, maybe six to 10 companies in their life. I mean, who knows as we as we go further down this, this road of sort of the new normal. But I think a really interesting thing that comes out of boot camps was now that these sales boot camps are coming up because people need to understand how to sell these SaaS products, right? We need people who, because more and more of those are becoming the norm. So these sales boot camps around technology products are really, really interesting that, like you said, a, a lot of people who might be talented in, in whether it's the food and beverage industry or or maybe like the, the hotel industry or something like that, they can sort of shift their talents to you know different sales practices and, and have higher paying jobs, right? That gives them opportunity to maybe stay home now and be with their, their kid rather than having to be at a physical location. So I think education to me is, is always that, that one foundational area that even in America, we haven't really figured out right, how to disrupt it in a way where everybody has an opportunity to be, to be highly educated at, at, a, at a, an affordability rate, right? I mean, it's, it's very expensive to get, to get highly educated, or it used to. But um, now I think it's coming a lot more, more affordable. Would you, would you sort of uh, maybe agree with that statement? Well, I think that's the hope for all the for 
for investors in this space and certainly, yeah. and certainly for consumers, the the massive debt burden that students are, are faced to bear in the U.S. really does inhibit their future prospects and their decision making. It, it, uh, it uh, inhibits their ability to invest in things like housing, mm-hmm. um, which is which impacts their ability to live that the financially inclusive lifestyle that we know is important. But we know that education is really really valuable for people. And so what, what you're finding is a massive dynamism from companies uh, looking to attack um, cost structures, efficacy, um, access uh, within education in a whole variety of ways. And so how do you decouple the actual education with the credential? Mm. How do you accelerate the ability to give somebody the kind of skill that they need to get their first job, knowing that on-the-job training tends to be the most important, but you do need some some uh, core skills, which is what you're seeing with boot camps. Um, figuring out how to celebrate uh, the uh, powerful attributes, uh, skills, and interests that people have um, uh, in ways that, that hadn't been celebrated before. Take a few examples that are um, separate from the boot camps, but but really. Interesting areas that uh, uh, where you, you see new new company formation, uh, companies that are um, figuring out how to employ um, the formerly incarcerated um, yeah. folks who had been systematically um, discriminated against and disadvantaged uh, because if you fill out a job application form, uh, you have to in many states disclose that you are, uh, uh, for instance, a felon, um, and that. Um, limited the ability yeah. to get uh, further jobs. Companies have figured out that um, these employees can be great employees. Um, and if you uh, create systems that um, allow them to get those jobs and then create training systems uh, uh, within those jobs, that they can be extremely great workers. Uh, take another example of uh, companies that, uh, that hire and celebrate veterans. Uh, veterans have had uh, great training uh, through their a military experience. Um, they are disciplined. Uh, they are hardworking. They operate with a very strong code of values and ethics. And uh, and companies figuring out how to give them the kinds of skills and tools, rather than having to go and go out into the workforce. The the kind of skills and uh, experiences in the military don't sometimes don't naturally lend themselves to private market jobs. And so for private market companies that create those natural pathways, it makes it an easy easy entry into the uh, civilian life and workforce. Take, for example, that uh, focus and hire on uh, adults with autism. The number one thing mm. that a parent thinks when their child is diagnosed on the spectrum is, what is my child's life going to be like as an adult? Will they be able to be self-sufficient? Right. And, and companies um, figuring out how to celebrate the special kind of neurodiversity that adults uh, who are on the uh, autism spectrum uh, have and, and be able to celebrate that through uh, curriculum and training have created great job opportunities for, uh, for for that type of worker. And so what you're seeing uh, includes flexible jobs for uh, working adults who, uh, who have commitments at home and need uh, flexibility to seniors who are in retirement, but uh, can't afford to properly retire. How do you celebrate their kinds of skills and abilities uh, in a modern workforce? And so right. you're seeing all these companies evolve to uh, to really address 
the job for the moment um, and provide training at, on the company's dime in their interest to do that. And, and, you're, and, and that's where you start to see that alignment between impact. I wanted to touch on this. This kind of blends a little bit of education and finance uh, together. And I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on doing are investors really interested in this? It, it seems to be a good product for, for consumers. It, going back to the college debt thing, income shared agreements have kind of come to the forefront a little bit in, in a lot of different ways. And there's, there's sort of a lot of startup companies coming into that realm. Has, has there been from your experience at all, I'm not sure if you, if you dived into the research at all, has there been any positive sort of data points that have come out of ISAs? And, and do you see that that has legs into trying to figure out how to make higher education more affordable for you know, millions of people in, in just America, not even talking about globally? Yeah, well, income share, share agreements are a really interesting idea to address the, um, the current problem, which is that uh, students are I was graduating from universities um, with very high debt loads. Um, and what many people uh, fail to understand is that debt load is not for, um, is not forgivable from bankruptcy. One of the only debts that's not forgivable from bankruptcy. Great point. So yeah. it's, a, it, it's an extremely burdensome debt load for, for many. And, and so income charging is looking to help solve that problem. Now, it's very early in the yeah. in the life cycle for income share agreements. So I think the jury is still out. And it's unclear if they if they if they fully address the core problem, which is the high and growing cost of education in general. And so I think that there is work to do on the public policy side and the nonprofit side. And and certainly there is work to do from the higher education perspective. And making sure that folks who are bearing any kind of debt burden are getting high quality jobs that can uh, certainly uh, afford them high quality financially inclusive lifestyles. Income share agreements are, are to address the challenge at the moment. We're seeking to do that. Uh, I think it's still early. I think it is a really good example of the kind of vibrancy that we're seeing in the marketplace. Now, without commenting specifically on income share agreements, you're going to see new models evolve um, yeah. around education. And I think we need to encourage that. Some will work and some won't, and that's okay. What, what we want to make sure that we're allowing, uh, allowing to happen is allowing the market to work um, and uh, try and experiment. And uh, what you'll see is evolving business models that, that really need to mark. You've seen that even in, so while many boot camps at, at the beginning of the boot camp phenomenon were charging high dollars, it became immediately obvious for, for all boot camp companies to make sure that they were focusing on uh, on placement, on, yep. on, on, on the results for students and for uh, starting salary. And some of those boot camps have evolved to bearing the full burden of the cost of education on themselves, believing that they will get paid on the back end if they do a good job for their students. And so you're seeing the market evolve, and it's unclear if one or more of those business models will emerge as dominant, maybe multiple. Uh, I think that the camp model is you know, a phenomenon that is here to stay in some way. Um, and there are many kinds of industries that can be positively touched by the bootcamp model, but it will evolve. Um, and income share agreements will be will be similar, and so they, they will grow and change. I expect. I think you know we will see them play out over the next decade, 
I think the results will speak for themselves. And that's that's one of the best things about the marketplace is the marketplace really will indicate whether some of these models work or not. Uh, I'll end on, on on this. This will, will kind of be a long question, but I, I wanted to touch on a, a couple of things a little bit uh, about the future. But one, I kind of wanted to just from a personal standpoint, what was the decision to join TZP Group? Like, I'm sure you had a lot of opportunities out there, but like, what was what really drew you towards this decision to make? And then what is what are some of the goals and maybe successes that over the next five to, to 10 years, you know, you would like to achieve from, from joining TCP, but also just like, you know, personally within within your life, like how do you look at, because to me, you have a really important job, right? I mean, you're allocating money that can impact lives. I, I don't mean to put the pressure on you or nothing, but like it's it's a good opportunity to be in, but it's it's also, you know, one that impacts you know, lives and impacts careers, it, you know, it impacts, you know, certain parts of the economy. So it's, it's a big deal. So just kind of take us through the, the thought process of, uh, of joining the company and what was the decision behind it? And then what, it, what is the sort of next decade? Uh, what are some of the goals you want to achieve? Yeah. So I feel very fortunate to have joined the TVP group, uh, which is a multi-strategy lower mid-market private equity fund. And we invest in a variety of businesses focused exclusively on the lower mid-market. Uh, mid-scale businesses that are looking for growth capital and operational capability. What I was looking to do in launching an impact fund focused on the lower mid-market is really filling in the gap between the capital that's gone into early-stage venture and impact mm-hmm. and, uh, more recently, the large gold bracket buyout fund. And so for us to have a vibrant impact ecosystem, we have to be able to graduate small companies into larger pools of capital Mm-hmm. that hopefully some of these will become uh, leaders in their fields and and, uh, and many of them will be public worthy, uh, public company worthy uh, uh, entities. Yep. Uh, it would feel, feel very proud if, uh, if one of our companies declares in their S1 not only their financial characteristics, but also their impact characteristics, or to what makes them attractive to public market investors. Yep. But in, in the meantime, TDP Group is a special place to launch that strategy. We are one of the first lower minimum for funds focused on impact in the U.S. Hmm. Uh, we're specifically focused on education, employment, finance, inclusion. But I think that over time, there's opportunity to launch new categories as well. What makes TZP special, and there's a whole the, the list is long, um, it starts with the values. Uh, TZP has um, an, an express list of values. Values. They're on the website. A lot of companies have their values listed on the website. We live by our values every Monday morning. We start and go on a table and read um, those values because they are part of who we are. And for me, launching an impact fund, being aligned in that way with the private equity group that I work with is extremely important uh, because that is what that is what we're doing with impact. The TDP had has had a longstanding uh, interest in. ESG um, and commitment to ESG, and uh, and had had an interest in impact too, and so we had a really strong alignment in what we were looking to accomplish with the impact fund, the kind of outcomes that we're looking to have in the domains that we're looking to invest in. We TCP also has an enormous amount of operational capability, and so we have a portfolio operations group that's able to bring resources. Uh, specifically, very senior executives uh, who are domain and industry experts uh, to bear to help our companies grow. 
really important. Yeah. And, and so when we think about investing in high potential impact focused companies, we're looking to help them grow not only through capital, but also through operational capability and give them every, every reason to, uh, to succeed and, and, uh, and achieve the business model that they're looking to offer. And so TZP is a, is a, is a very uh, impressive platform from all those perspectives. Um, and I think it also speaks to the kind of people that TZP has been able to attract, folks who are like-minded in, in, in terms of how they uh, build businesses, how they perform with founders. We have a, a, a philosophy that is omnipresent around our, our, our firm called Partner of Choice. Uh, where we uh, are looking to align ourselves with founders and operators and help them build their business. Um, and I think that's very true, especially for impact, where um, the folks who are building those businesses have a clear idea about who they want to serve, about the outcomes they want to have, but they also want to build a good business. And so that philosophical mindset was also uh, very aligned to how we wanted to build uh, build businesses. And I think the last, the last thing to say about TGP is that they had the vision uh, and the interest to invest in this area where very few are. And this is a new industry. There's a lot of building to do. Uh, we have a lot to prove. Um, but I think that there's a massive potential. And I think it speaks to how TGP is a leader in the industry that they've taken this step as one of the first lower mid market funds to to launch an impact strategy to um, to make a significant bet where they could have invested in, in other more well-established areas. Amazing! Thank you so much for taking the time, Justin. I mean, it's uh, I know you know you're very busy. You got you got a lot on your plate, and, and I know carving out some time during during busy weeks can can be difficult sometimes. So I I truly appreciate you taking the time. You know, best of luck to you to you and the team and the rest of this year, and you know, hopefully for for the next decade. You guys build a team and resources around you to to really execute the vision, you know. And it's a, it's it can be a, a beautiful thing and, and impact some lives and and uh, really create some transformational things in some industries that's uh, ripe for disruption. So, uh, congrats on the the new venture and uh, best of luck.